The Man Who Was Kipling by Ruskin Bond I was sitting on a bench in the Indian section of the Victoria and Albert Museum in London when a tall, stooping, elderly gentleman sat down beside me. I gave him a quick glance, noting his swarthy features, heavy moustache and horn-rimmed spectacles. There was something familiar and disturbing about his face, and I couldn't resist looking at him again. I noticed that he was smiling at me. Do you recognise me? he said in a soft, pleasant voice. Well, you do seem familiar, I said. Haven't we met somewhere? Perhaps. But if I seem familiar to you, that's at least something. The trouble these days is that people don't know me any more. I'm a familiar, that's all. Just a name, standing for a lot of outmoded ideas. A little perplexed, I asked, what is it you do? Oh, I wrote books once, poems and tales. Tell me, what books do you read? Oh, Maugham, Priestley, Thurber, and among the older lot, Bennett and, and Wells, uh, I hesitated, groping for an important name, and I noticed a shadow, a, a sad shadow, pass across my companion's face. Oh yes, and, and Kipling, I said. I read a lot of Kipling. His face brightened at once, and the eyes behind the thick lens spectacles suddenly came to life. I'm Kipling, he said. I stared at him in astonishment, and then, realising that he might perhaps be dangerous, I smiled feebly and said, Oh yes, you probably don't believe me. I'm dead, of course, and so I thought. And you don't believe in ghosts? Well, not as a rule. But you'd have no objection to talking to one if he came along? I'd have no objection, but how do I know you're Kipling? How do I know you're not an imposter? Listen, then. When my heavens were turned to blood, when the dark had filled my day, furthest but most faithful stood that lone star I cast away. I had loved myself and I, have not lived and dare not die. Once, he said, gripping me by the arm and looking me straight in the eye, once in life I watched a star. But I whistled, let her go. Your star hasn't fallen yet, I said, suddenly moved, suddenly quite certain that I sat beside Kipling. One day, when there is a new spirit of adventure abroad, we will discover you again. Why have you heaped scorn on me for so long? Um, you were too militant, I suppose. Too much of an empire man. You were too patriotic for your own good. He looked a little hurt. I was never political, he said. I wrote over six hundred poems, and you could only call a dozen of them political. 
I have been abused for harping on the theme of the white man's burden, but my only aim was to show off the empire to my audience, and I believed the empire was a fine and noble thing. Is it wrong to believe in something? I never went deeply into political issues. That's true. You must remember, my seven years in India were very youthful years. I was in my twenties, a little immature, if you like, and my interest in India was a boy's interest. Action appealed to me more than anything else. You must understand that. No one has described action more vividly or India so well. I feel at one with Kim wherever he goes along the Grand Trunk Road, in the, te in the temples of Banaras, among the Saharampur fruit gardens, on the snow-covered Himalayas. Kim has colour and movement and poetry. He sighed, and a wistful look came into his eyes. I'm prejudiced, of course, I continued. I've spent most of my life in India, not your India, but in India that does still have much of the colour and atmosphere that you captured. You know, Mr Kipling, you can still sit in a third-class railway carriage and meet the most wonderful assortment of people. In any village, you will still find the same courtesy, dignity, and courage that the Lama and Kim found on their travels. And the Grand Trunk Road? Is it still a winding procession of humanity? Well, not exactly, I said, a little ruefully. It's just a procession of motor vehicles now. The poor Lama would be run down by a truck if he became too dreamy on the Grand Trunk Road. Times have changed. There's no more Mrs. Hawksby in Simla, for instance. There was a faraway look in Kipling's eyes. Perhaps he was imagining himself as a boy again. Perhaps he could see the hills or the red dust of the Rajputana. Perhaps he was having a private conversation with privates Mulvani and Ortheris, or perhaps he was out hunting with the Seance wolf pack. The sound of London's traffic came to us through the glass doors, but we heard only the creaking of bullock cart wheels and the distant music of a flute. He was talking to himself, repeating a passage from one of his stories, and the last puff of the day wind brought from the unseen villagers the scent of damp wood smoke, hot cakes, dripping undergrowth, and rotting pine cones. That is the true smell of the Himalayas, and if once it creeps into the blood of a man, that man will at last, forgetting all else, return to the hills to die. A mist seemed to have risen between us, or had it come from the streets? And when it cleared, Kipling had gone away. I asked the gatekeeper if he had seen a tall man with a slight stoop wearing spectacles. Nope, said the gatekeeper. Nobody been by for the last ten minutes. Did someone like that come into the gallery a little while ago? No one that I recall. What did you say the bloke's name was? Kipling, I said.
No, don't know him. Didn't you ever read the Jungle Books? Sounds familiar. Tarzan stuff, wasn't it? I left the museum and wandered about the streets for a long time, but I couldn't find Kipling anywhere. Was it the boom of London's traffic that I heard? Or the boom of the Suchlidge River racing through the valleys?